we're doing triple sevens tonight. Yeah. <laughs> that was a good segue, wasn't it? <laughs> we are doing triple sevens. If you don't know what triple sevens is, we have um, three speakers, um, uh, usually um, people who are leading or serving within our team um, who come up and they speak on the topic for seven minutes each. I have a timer. I cut the mic if they go over seven minutes. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I would um, love for you guys to give a big round of applause. We have our three speakers tonight. We're talking on spiritual warfare, what their journeys have been and what their learnings have been um, uh, as, we, as we talk about spiritual warfare as a community. Um, which is going to be so, I'm so excited to hear what they have to say. So um, how about you guys give a big round of applause. We have um, Asher McLeod. Yes. (laughs) We have John Miller. Yeah. We have Joseph Fink. Yeah. (laughs) That's very exciting. All right. To start us off, we have John Miller, who's been working on sound, and now he's coming back up all the way up here. Give him a round of applause, why don't you? church how are we doing that's good that's good so yeah as Minik said I've been asked or we've all been asked to speak on our personal experiences of spiritual warfare um and initially when she asked I nearly said no because I was like you know I've got some experiences but um I don't exactly know if there's something specific God wants me to talk about so you know after much prayer and deliberation God's like hey right here there's something right here John what do you John come on so um and it's actually something that impacts a fair few people in this church. Um, so it was actually the album recording weekend uh, in August. So I'm not actually sure how many people that weren't super involved with the, the running of it, if they know how many things just went wrong that week, um, leading up to that weekend. I mean, obviously we had, you know, Jan's wrist break was a pretty big one. Um, you know, we had an incident where one of the main acoustic guitars we were using broke. It just snapped, neck snapped. There was an incident, and it snapped, and that could have created so many different continuity errors without recordings, and all these different things that could have happened. Um, there was a point where we actually couldn't record all of the album in a row, like just with the, all the gear that we hired, it just wouldn't work. So, luckily, we have a great team, so we were able to find ways around it. But, and then just the amount of sickness that we had, and the team leading up to it is just the amount of things that went wrong. It was just a lot of it. Um, and whether whether or not we believe that the devil caused some of these things to happen, I think one thing that was very clear um, to me and others that he was in those things trying to manipulate them, trying to tear us apart and tear us away from what God was trying to do through the album. Um, so obviously the album hasn't released yet, but we've already seen such an amazing thing throughout our church with these songs coming out. That, And we know that you know we, we believe and, and trust God that when that releases, it's going to increase tenfold. Um, so yeah, we're believing for that. Um, I know personally, I had um, heard many lies from the enemy over that project. Um, one that was very clear was when we're when I was driving home from a very late night, um, setting everything up for the album, and I just all of a sudden just these thoughts started popping in my head. It was like you know all these awful thoughts of you know. You're worthless. You're you're useless. They don't actually want you in that team. Like that, the, the, you're not even 
you're not even good enough to be a part of the team. It's like all these things started coming in, you know, and I was like, man, man, it's so true. Like, what am I doing? What, what happened? And, you know, after a couple of minutes of these things um, getting me down and growing sad from it, I kind of just, just, there was this click, and I was like, and it, and it just felt like God was just lifting my head out of the, the water of the lies and saying, no, John, John, what are you? Come on, you know better than that. That's not true. You are my son, and I love you. And I was like, uh, um, <laughs> thank you, Sheridan. <laughs> um, and, and at that point, I just um, started reciting all the scriptures that I had memorized and, and all the scriptures that I had written on my heart that spoke against those things. And um, I was able to use the, the sword of the spirit, you know, which is the word of God, and speak back against the lies of the enemy, which was really cool. Um, but yeah, so when I got home from driving, I ended up messaging um, the rest of the Activate production music team um, just to be like, hey guys, this happened by the way. Not to be like, a, oh, poor me, pray for me. But it was actually like, hey, be aware of this and be on the offense because, because the devil is trying to clearly get into what we're doing and trying to stop us. Um, I also sent it as an encouragement to be like, hey guys, we're on the right path. Like, and, and, and it was very clear to me that like, you know, the, the points where you receive the most spiritual pushback from the enemy is when you're doing what God wants. You know, when you're following where he's taking you, that's when you're going to receive the most. Um, so, yeah, we're just really believing for massive things to come from that album once we get it to release. Um, one thing I feel like I should highlight is that when it comes to spiritual warfare, I don't, I don't think that it's... I don't think that the focus should be on the offensive. I, I think that when we look at the armor of the armor of God... We see in Ephesians 6, 10 to 8, 18, sorry, that most of them do involve defense. Um, most of them is, is, you know, how we can protect ourselves. So I, I do believe that, you know, we should, we should be trusting God that, you know, the battle is his, the battle is won on our behalf, that he's already done it all. So that the focus should be on the defense for us. However, there is the time for being on the offensive. I, th- I think Jesus showed this when he was being tempted in the desert by the devil, um, you know, in Matthew 4, 1 to 11, where he was able to speak back against the lies of the enemy using, using the word of God, which is uh, such a tool for us. Um, which brings me to one of my main points for tonight, you know, nice and short and sweet, but um, to do this, to do what Jesus did and, and speak back against those lies of the enemy, we need to be familiar with his word, we need to memorize um, them, and even better, I think, I think we, need to, we need to write scripture in our heart. Um, you know, Proverbs 7, 2 to 3 um, says, keep my commandments and live. Keep my teachings as the apple of your eye. Or as other translations say, guard my teachings as you guard your eye. Bind them on your fingers and write them on the tablet of your heart. So, so, what, so what does it mean to write something on, on your heart? Well, to me, what this mainly looks like is, you know, obviously knowing, knowing the scripture is a great start, but but really diving into the context of it, what it, what it meant in that time, what what all of the implications are, wrestling with it, taking it to God, saying, God, like, I'm struggling with this, like, really get into it with him. And then from that point, put it into practice, take these, pra- make practical steps to keep you on track with it. Um, and I think, yeah, why it's important to, to keep his teaching on our, our heart is obviously so that we can speak back against those lies of the enemy. But also, I think it, I think what we have written on our heart reflects how we behave. I think um, 
if someone has hurt written on their heart, um, you know, people have been speaking hurt over them all their lives, how are they going to interact with people? How are they going to treat people? How are they going to, um, yeah, live their lives? If someone has the wrong self-image written on their heart, um, you know, again, just being spoken over you, how will they behave? How will they raise a family? Um, yeah. But when we have the Word of God written on our hearts, you know, like these are some of the things that I say to myself, you know, from Ephesians 2.10, which says that I am a masterpiece. You know, Genesis 1.27, which says that I am created by God in His image. Romans 5.8 and John 3.16 both say that I am loved by Him. Joseph 1.9 says that... Uh, Joshua, sorry, not Joseph. He's a good guy. Joshua 1.9 says that uh, He'll be with me wherever I go. So then when we have these things run in a hut, how, how are we going to live our lives? How are we going to raise our family, how are we going to interact with other people? Um, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think that's a, that's focused, how are we going to live our lives, but, but better than that, how are we going to live our lives for God? Because, you know, Galatians 2.20 says that I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Um, so, you know, it's great to read our Bibles. You know, I encourage that. Memorize verses, that's awesome. But but if we're not putting, putting them into practice, if we're not letting them impact how we live our lives, then what's the point? Um, if we don't let them reach the very center of us and, and move us and compel us, then, then why are we doing it? Um, I'm not up here saying all these things to be like pointing fingers at you. Because, man, when I was writing this, I was like, God was like, hey, bro. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're right. Sorry. Um, but, yeah, yeah, church, I, I really encourage all of us to um, find a couple of verses that counteract some things that, that we personally struggle with. Um, and, and not only know them, but dwell with them, uh, let God use them to, to motivate you and to move you, and, and yeah, change how you live. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. So I'm going to start off by just reading a chunk of scripture. So if you want to join along, I'll tell you now. It's Mark 11, 12 through to 26. Uh, also, kia ora, I'm, I'm Joseph. So shout out to Brandon. He's in the cupboard. Anyway, so I'm just going to read through all of this, and then we'll talk about it and dwell on it. So the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, He went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one eat from you ever again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the table of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow any merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers? The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went up out of the city, In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. 
Peter remembered what and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go and throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So it's a little bit weird, um, because the story kind of starts off with Jesus, and he's walking along, and uh, he sees a fig tree, and he goes, oh, okay, well, I'm a bit peckish, so, you know, I'll take a slight detour on my path, and I'll check out the fig tree. Um, And then he sees that it has no fruit. So he decides to curse the tree uh, and leaves. Which, it's a, it's a little weird. I, I mean, we, we know that God doesn't do things for no good reasons. So let's delve in and see if we can figure out a little bit more of what's going on here. So the story is also kind of interrupted in the middle. Because you've got like fig tree at the end, random temple bit, fig tree at the, sorry, fig tree at the beginning. Temple bit in the middle, fig tree at the end. Uh, so what's with that? I mean, we know that it's placed there for a reason, so let's explore. So uh, the temple bit in the middle, uh, first of all, it gives me the excuse for wherever, whenever, flip tables. Um, <laughs> uh, but but it, it's got this portion about him flipping the tables and driving out the people selling doves and money changes. And um, it's a bit weird. So in order to understand that, we've got to take a small leap into Levitical law. Now, I know that's not particularly interesting for everyone, so I'm going to give you the succinct version. Basically, uh, doves were needed as sort of one of the cheaper elements for a lot of the sacrifices required. And we know from the context around this passage that Passover is coming. So Jews are coming from all over the known Roman world at that point, and a lot of them are coming from places. If you're coming from Egypt, your currency is not going to be the same as the Jewish shekel. So you need money changes so that they can actually purchase goods for the sacrifices. Well, you could bring a sacrifice from home, but if you're coming from Egypt, it probably won't survive the journey. And so you've got people selling doves in the temple courts. You, you want to go use a dove, you can go there. So it makes sense to have these two things in the temple. Except it doesn't. Because the temple's part of a city, and a city has a marketplace where you can sell and exchange goods and you can get your money in currency exchange. So why is it in the temple? Now, several scholars have have gone and looked into this, and they believe that the markets in the temple were sanctioned by the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin's fancy name for the guys who were running the show. The guys who were running the show, if you brought a dove from outside, they got to inspect it. So if you brought a dove that they thought wasn't good enough, they would handedly say, well, we've got this pre-selected arrangement of doves here that you could buy us for, and we're definitely not putting a surcharge on them because that would be unethical. (laughs) But we know later uh, that they were, of course, putting surcharges on things because in Mark 12.30, Jesus says, hey, look, it's the guy who devours widows' houses. Um, So you kind of get an idea that... Maybe the temple is profiting out of the poor 
And at the minimum, it's enabling sloth from the people who are going there. Okay, great. What does that have to do with fig trees? Um, so to go back to the fig tree, when he goes and he looks at the fig tree, it says, it was not the fi- season for figs. Now, a little bit of a tangent. I grew up for a small portion of my time on a bit of an orchard. And if you've ever seen fig trees out of season, uh, they don't have leaves. They're thin, spindly, little anemic trees. They're not really good for anything. (laughs) Am I wrong, Pastor Michael? Uh, Would you use them for firewood, even? Yeah. So what we have here is a tree in leaf. So it's got the promise of being able to grow fruit. But on closer inspection, there's nothing actually going on to produce fruit. So, another wonderful tangent, because I'm Joseph and I love going on tangents. Uh, Have you ever been outside, and it's a hot sunny day, and you're chilling with your mates, and you're like, man, I want to talk about something, but it is blistering. Hey, there's a massive tree. Let's go sit under that tree, and we'll, we'll sit there and spin a yarn. Well, that's sort of one of the reasons why, symbolically, a tree is understood to be a, a sort of symbol for philosophies and schooling and teaching and ideas. There's a common idiom that to sit under the fig tree is to learn from a rabbi. So it's well known within the context that when you're speaking about sitting under a tree and dwelling under a tree, it's talking about ideologies. So, in summary so far, we've got a fruitless tree and a temple scumming the people. Uh, Let's try link the two. We've got a tree with no fruit and a temple with no godliness. A place of shelter with false promises and a temple scamming those it's meant to save. And by the way, the name of this temple is Temple Mount because it's on a mountain. And, And what does Jesus say when he's leaving at the end? When he says, and I tell you, anyone who says to this mountain, He's not talking about mountains in general. He's talking about a very specific mountain that they just came from. It's the only mountain in the region between Bethany and Jerusalem. And he's saying, uh, this place where they've built this whole system of scamming people from their money and creating a system in where you have to play by their very specific legalistic rules in order to be saved, that can go and throw itself into the ocean. And with the fig tree, have you ever encountered ideas and philosophies that promise shade, that promise to be a good place to sit and rest, but all they actually produce is showboating, a false appearance that they'll actually give you something of substance? Have you seen industries who present themselves as being able to give you wholeness and fulfillment, but all they do is manipulate, alienate, and isolate the people within? Jesus tells us that through prayer, we can command these trees to wither. We can command these mountains to move and crumble. That the very foundation that these industries of corruption stand upon, that they can get up and toss themselves into the abyss. We have permission to curse trees and move mountains. Thank you. Uh, 
and we have the wonderful Asher speaking next. Oh, thanks guys. Um, I want to apologise in advance because I do not have good jokes like Joseph, but we'll all have to live, it's fine. Um, tonight, I really wanted to talk about shame because I think shame is one of the most powerful weapons that can be used against us and it's played a core role in my journey with God as well. So shame is the feeling of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. And before starting, I want to mention that there is a difference between guilt and shame, because guilt can sometimes be very healthy. Guilt addresses our actions, but shame attacks our identity. So where guilt says, I did something bad, shame says, I am bad. I'm sure that everyone in this room has felt shame before. I know that I definitely have. A little backstory on my journey with God. I was raised Christian all throughout my entire childhood. And then through my teen years, it's been very up and down of me pulling away and coming back to God. And every single time I pulled away from God, it was because of shame. I was getting caught up in worldly things, doing stuff that I knew was wrong. And then when I thought about turning back to God and changing my ways, I was reminded of those things that I'd done. I was flooded with thoughts that I didn't deserve to be with God anymore or that he'd be ashamed of me. Shame was keeping me away from God. Maybe you've had a similar experience. Maybe you believe that God won't love you anymore or that he'll condemn you because of the things you've done. The most important point that I'll make tonight is that that is not true. God will not see you as disgusting, evil, corrupt, or anything else you may think about yourself. That is the enemy talking. The enemy wants to make you so ashamed that you don't go to God with your struggles because he knows that where God is, that's where peace is. That's where love and acceptance is. That's where freedom, comfort, and joy is. Shame is never from God. It only keeps us from God. While guilt can be healthy because it guides and corrects our actions, shame calls our identity into question. But with God, we know that our actions do not determine our identity because our identity is firm in him. Our sin does not change the fact that we are his children and he loves us. That's what scripture tells us. The enemy says, you did this, so you're not good enough to enter God's presence. But Jesus himself says in Matthew 9, 12, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. He wants us to come to him no matter how many bad things we've done. And you may be sitting there thinking that this only applies to certain actions or that you've crossed a line that Jesus cannot forgive. But I'm here to say that the line does not exist. There's no limit on God's grace. That is a thought from the enemy to keep you from going to God. The Bible says that we, if we confess our sins, God can purify us from all unrighteousness. All we need to do is go to God, but shame is stopping us from doing that. Shame is such a powerful weapon in the spiritual battle, and we don't even realize it because we think we deserve it. I know I definitely thought that my shame was justified, and I even thought that it was coming from God. But scripture tells us the complete opposite. Nothing that keeps us away from God would be from God. We can feel convicted, but we should never feel so ashamed that we're scared to be seen by God. 
So how do we fight shame in this spiritual battle? 1 John 1 7 says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We need to bring everything into the light. Shame can only exist in the darkness because it is based entirely on lies. Once we bring things into the light, then truth can be spoken over our situation. This verse talks about being in the light where God is and having fellowship with each other. So the first step of bringing it into the light is bringing it to God. Pray about it. Tell him what you've done and how you feel. Just be honest with him. John 3.21 says, Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And the sight of God is loving and forgiving. He wants to heal your shame and restore your identity in him. The second way we can bring everything into the light is being honest with the godly people around you. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. This was something that I found really hard because of my shame and fear of what people would think of me. But telling my close friends about what I had done and what I've gone through was one of the best decisions I could have made. A few weeks ago... I was with two of my best friends, Amani and Ella, and I asked them a question that was really weighing on my heart, and it was actually super difficult for me to ask. I said to them, do you think I'm a bad influence? And then they just started laughing because of how absurd that idea was to them. But to me, I genuinely believed that that's what people thought of me. In my head, the lies of the enemy were winning over the word of God because I never brought them into the light where truth is. The second that I brought my shame into the light, my friends were able to speak truth over me and remind me what the Bible says about who I am. And from there, I was really able to start living for God because my shame was gone. Shame has no foothold in the light. So to wrap up, I just want to remind you that shame is never from God. It's a weapon used to keep us away from God, but you don't have to let it win. Turn to what scripture says about you and bring everything into the light. Bring it to God and lean on the people around you. We've been cleansed in the sight of God, so instead of letting the enemy win, let's live in this truth.